Well, please grab your Bibles and turn with me to Joshua chapter 11. Joshua chapter 11 is where we'll be today, covering the entire chapter, and this will be the um, last time for a while that we cover just one chapter from the book of Joshua. It's the final battle scene of the book of Joshua, and then after the battles are over and they own the land or they possess the land, well, there's a, a quite a bit of dividing up that has to happen of the, uh, with the land, and um, we're going to go a little bit faster through those parts where you just hear about who gets what portion. That takes several, several chapters of the book of Joshua, and we'll cover that in probably just a couple of messages. But Joshua chapter 11 is where we are today. And uh, how about I open with a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll get into some stuff. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much that we, as Christians, can sing that we stand redeemed. Because of Your work, we have redemption. Jesus has become to us redemption. We have all of our salvation tied up in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and we thank You that You've placed us in Him by faith. And God, we ask that today, as we look into Your Word, that You would give us insight, that You would help us to understand what Your Word says, that You would help us to apply Your Word, that we would be faithful to um, be disciplined in our minds this morning as we examine events that took place in a culture far away and very different from our own. Lord, help us in our study today, and we ask together that I, as the preacher of the Word, would not get in the way of your text, but that your Word would be clear to your people today. And we ask for this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, today is the final battle scene that we have in the book of Joshua, and perhaps you're happy to hear that. <laughs> perhaps you're happy that we're done with some of the blood and gore after today. I was thinking about after the opening Scripture reading that I gave to Rex, you know, the guys who preside ask me what to read at the start, and they pick out what we read at the end. And after sitting down, it's like, that wasn't a very encouraging passage. That <laughs> wasn't. What was I thinking? But it's just the text. That's what we're reading, okay? That's what happened. And, and it's the final battle scene in the book of Joshua today. Now, I do want to give a little bit of a review of where we've been, a map review of where we've been. So if we could pull up that first map, it's difficult because uh, Israel, if you can imagine the land of Israel in your mind's eye, it's tall and skinny. And these are widescreen TVs. So trying to get a map of a tall and skinny place on a widescreen TV just doesn't work very well. We can't rotate the screen. Uh, but uh, this gives you a little bit of an idea of where we've been, all right? That's the Dead Sea down at the bottom, or as it's labeled here, the Salt Sea. That's the biggest body of water, and the tiny bottle, uh, body of water up there is the Sea of Galilee as we know it, and the Jordan River connects them. They're just north of the Dead Sea, the arrow that's going to the left. That's where Israel entered into the land. If you remember all the way back in Joshua chapter 3, it was miraculous that the Jordan River ceased from flowing and they were able to cross. And that's about where they crossed, just north of the Dead Sea. And all of the action so far in the book of Joshua, as they've been encountering various cities and fighting with various kingdoms, it's taken place here in that southern part of the land. You can't see the names of the city from where, cities from where you're seated, but all these cities we've been reading about, they're, they're right there in the southern central part of the land, basically. And today, that big red arrow that goes north, that's what we're looking at today, is clearing out the rest of the land. The northern part of what we know as Israel, but then the land of Canaan, the northern part still needed to be taken. And that's what's happening today. So maybe that helps you a little bit understand with this north-south, east-west business, what's going on. And today we're going north. So let's read the passage together, uh, starting in verse 1 of chapter 11. I'll read down through verse 9. Joshua 11.1. 1. It says, Then it came about, when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of it, that he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Ashaph, and to the kings who were of the north in the hill country and in the Arabah, south of Chinneroth. When, when you see that word Chinneroth, that's the Sea of Galilee area. That was known as Lake Chinneroth before it was the Sea of Galilee. So that's the area, okay? We're talking about the northern part of the land. 
and in the lowland, and on the heights of Dor on the west, to the Canaanite on the east and on the west, and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Jebusite in the hill country, and the Hivite at the foot of Hermon in the land of Mizpah. They came out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. So all of these kings, having agreed to meet, came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. Verse 6, Then Yahweh said to Joshua, Do not be afraid because of them, for tomorrow at this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and with fire. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came upon them suddenly by the waters of Merom and attacked them. The Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel so that they defeated them and pursued them as far as the great Sidon and Mizraphoth Maim in the valley of Mizpah to the east. And they struck them until no survivor was left to them. Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Wow. Well, this passage starts with another collaboration or collusion of kings set against Israel. This is not the first time we've seen this. In fact, you can run your eyes back over chapters 9 and 10, the first verse of these chapters. We can look at them together. Joshua 9.1, it says, Now it came about when all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and the lowland and all the coast, they got together. Verse 2, they gathered themselves. Chapter 10, verse 1, Now it came about when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured Ai, on and on it goes, he gets with other kings, and they gathered themselves. And then here we are in chapter 11, the same thing is happening. It came about when such and such heard of it, that such and such got with so and so, and they conspired to fight against Israel. It was just happening over and over and over again. And we don't know much about all of these kings, except that they died pretty soon after we heard about them, right? <laughs> it wasn't long after we first heard about them that they engaged Israel in war, and each of them, of course, died. But we do know this. They hated God, and they hated the people of God. Just like the rest of humanity in our natural state, born into this world, not as saints, we are born into this world as sinners. In the natural state, these kings hated God, and they hated the people of God. We have to remember the heart of man, don't we? As we go back and we read narratives like this, we don't want to disconnect the realities that God has given us about each and every human being from these people. We know from the New Testament in Romans chapter 1 that the heart of man is wicked and it suppresses revelation given. What does the natural man do in his flesh when God reveals himself by nature? Through creation, it's evident that God exists, is it not? But what does the natural man do? He takes the light and he suppresses the light into darkness. Man suppresses the truth, it says, and replaces the truth with what? Do you remember? A lie. And instead of worshiping and serving the Creator, natural man worships and serves, do you remember? The creature. This is the heart of man. And so we know that these kings hate God, hate the people of God. It takes a work of God in the heart of a man for him to change. In Romans chapter 2, it talks about how each and every human being, as fallen as we all are in our natural state, each and every human being has a conscience. And in Romans 2, it says that that conscience alternately convicts them and justifies them. It's like one of those oscillating fans blowing this direction one time and blowing this direction another time. And you can remember, Christian, what it was like before you were a Christian. There were certain things you were convicted of, weren't there? You try to stuff that voice down, try to justify yourself and your flesh. Well, the conscience is a gift that God's given to all people, and in a person's flesh, that's just suppressed along with the rest of Revelation. That nature that God has given people is just suppressed. The eternity that He has set in each one's heart is suppressed. 
And all of this, as we consider particularly kings that were doing this, kings that were rising up to fight against the people of God, and in so doing, they were fighting against God. I can't help but be reminded of Psalm 2, the second psalm. And I want to read this entire psalm to you. It starts off this way. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? This sounds like the book of Joshua, doesn't it? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. It's like you can almost hear that in these secret meetings that we're having at the start of each chapter. The king saying, let us tear them apart. We're going to fight against the Lord. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Aren't you thankful our God is big? Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship Yahweh with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that He not become angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Well, this, of course, is ultimately talking about Jesus, isn't it? Kiss the Son capital S-O-N, do homage to the Son of God, submit to the Son of God. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords, and He is judge of judges, isn't He? All kings will submit to that king. All judges will have to submit to that judge. He is the ultimate judge, and He's the ultimate Israelite. He came in the flesh, and He's coming again. He will achieve ultimate victory as king, won't He? God will win, won't He? He has installed His King upon Zion. And as God advances against the world, as God pushes against, leads a charge against the world, what can the world do in response? This is important for you to remember, Christian. The only thing that the world can do in response to God's advances is muster worldly strength, and that is not enough. Look again at our text today, Joshua 11. Look at verse 4. What do they do, these kings? Well, they come out, they, they and all their armies with them. Their armies have as many people as the sand of the seashore, and they have many horses, and they have many chariots. Not good enough. You're doing war with the Almighty. You're engaging in battle with Yahweh, the God of Israel, who parts the sea, who stops the river, who sends plagues, who sits in the heavens and does whatever He pleases. That's not enough, is it? It could never be enough. You can't win a gunfight with a pocket knife. And that's all this is. What are horses and what are chariots to the Almighty? Well, horses and chariots, of course, at that time, especially from an earthly perspective, that was quite the display of strength. The more people, the more horses, the more chariots you had, the stronger you were as a military, the more you were to be feared in the eyes of your neighbors because of your worldly strength. There's no way for us to know the exact numbers, but Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian, he speculated about this particular army of this collaboration from Joshua 11. And he said it's likely that they had upwards of 300,000 infantry soldiers, 10,000 cavalry troops, 20,000 chariots. Of course, in man's eyes, thinking from the flesh, that's scary, isn't it? That's very intimidating. But Israel was not to look at the means of war but instead they were to look to their maker. They weren't to trust 
in the means of battle, but they were to trust in the God of the battle. They weren't to look to their own hands for victory in their army, but they were to look to the commander of the Lord's army who gives ultimate victory no matter what the means are. Similar to how he worked in Gideon's life. You remember that? The army got whittled down to 300. Kept whittling that army down fewer and fewer and fewer. So there would be no doubt that this was God's doing in giving them victory. As Christians, it's our duty to trust in God over any of our stuff, isn't it? We can get so caught up in the means and think, well, how could God work with this? I, we, we don't have enough to give God for Him to work with. Well, it starts with God doesn't need stuff, does He? God doesn't need anything to bring about His purposes. He is totally complete in Himself. And if we are in Him, we too are complete. We have all that we need in God because God doesn't need. Thus, God's people are always to trust in Him more than things. This passage will, if you know your Bible, it'll it'll remind you of Psalm 20. I want to just read a section to you, Psalm 20, verses 6 to 9. It says, now I know that the Lord saves His anointed. He will answer Him from His holy heaven with the saving strength of His right hand. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. And they have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stood upright. Save, O Lord, may the King answer us in the day we call. What a contrast between worldly thinking and godly thinking. Some trust in their stuff. Some trust in the means that they've conjured up for themselves. But in the day of battle, it doesn't matter how many chariots. It doesn't matter how many horses. In the day of battle, it matters if God's on your side or not. Remember last week, we looked at Moses talking to Pharaoh. And God, through Moses, said to Pharaoh, this is what's going to happen. My people are going to win, and it's going to be so clear that I make a distinction between Israel and Egypt. Not even a dog is going to bark against Israel. Was Israel bigger and stronger than Egypt? No way. Absolutely not. They were enslaved by Egypt. But does that matter to the Almighty? No, it does not. Because if God says this is how it's going to be, no purpose of His can be thwarted. comes from the book of Job. None of God's plans can be undone. In fact, as we think of horses and chariots specifically, it's pretty interesting in the law. This is in Deuteronomy 17, verse 16. God says to Israel that as you have a leader among you, he is not to multiply horses and chariots. The law said, don't do it. Because God wanted to make sure that they were always trusting in him and not the means you start getting a bunch of firepower around you. You start thinking, I've, I'm okay because of my stuff. But that's never the case. You're only okay if God says you're okay. Well, God continued to give Joshua and Israel a taste of that ultimate victory. We see His promise in our passage that we've read, the first nine verses. Verse 6, the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid because of them. For tomorrow I will deliver all of them slain. So make no mistake, this victory was of the Lord. God was doing the delivering. He gave them a sure, a certain promise that they would be delivered. And we don't have as much detail as we did in chapter 10. If you remember last chapter, we read about the sun standing still, a very detailed description of that battle. We don't have that much detail in chapter 11. But we do have this point in verse 8 where God says that He's the one who is going to deliver them. He's delivering them into the hand of Israel. Well, um, how did He do that? Well, God was active in their lives, wasn't He? God was active in the lives of the enemy, which may cause us to feel a little bit uncomfortable, but it gets even more uncomfortable than that if you want to keep reading. God was active in their lives to deliver them over that they would lose. If we look down to verse 20, look at what it says. Look at the description of how God was involved to deliver them. It says, It was of the Lord to harden their hearts to meet Israel in battle in order that He might utterly destroy them, that they might 
receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. God hardened the hearts of the enemy. He brought them to this point where they would lose in battle to Israel. There was no other way that this was going to go because God was so involved to bring about His purposes here that He was working in their lives to harden their hearts, that they would be stiff-necked, that they would be proud and arrogant and say, we can beat these wimps. The first two kingly collusions failed, but not us. We have it figured out. But that was God's doing to bring them to that place that they might, it says in verse 20, be destroyed, that they might receive no mercy. This is just what he did in Egypt, isn't it? Hardening the heart of Pharaoh, that over and over again, Pharaoh would think, I can beat God's people. I can fight against God. Only that God would ultimately make that distinction between his people and Egypt as he showed his power. Well, there are two reasons in verse 20 that it says God hardened their hearts. The first, like I mentioned, was to destroy them, to destroy them without mercy. He hardened their hearts so that they would be destroyed without mercy. Their time for finding grace before God had run up. They were not to receive grace. They were to be destroyed. Remember all the way back in Genesis 15 where God was making these promises to Abram. And he said that the time of the Amorite was not yet complete. The sin of the Amorite was not yet full. Well, now it's gotten to the point where it's full, and they were not to find grace. They had continually rebelled against the God who made them. And the second reason was to fulfill the commandment. You see that in verse 20? It wasn't just to destroy them, but also in that destroying, it fulfilled the commandment as the Lord had commanded Moses. God was bringing all of this to this point, wasn't He? He had told Moses that they were to destroy the Canaanites, that there were to be no survivors. They were to go in and utterly destroy all that breathed. There was to be no life remaining. This is a part of fulfilling the commandment, this utter destruction. Well, does God's involvement in this create some sort of philosophical or ethical dilemma in your heart? I imagine for some of you it does, that well, God, can't, God can't do that, can He? Harden their hearts to destroy them? For some of you, that, that comes across as a bit, I don't know, cruel maybe, that God would be so active in the lives of unbelievers, those who have rebelled against Him, those who are wicked and fallen and hate Him that He would harden their hearts further in order to destroy them. Well, it is an amazing reality, isn't it, that God's sovereignty extends to each one's heart. Sometimes we can talk about God's sovereignty and keep it really far away, which is an oxymoron in itself, because the nature of God's sovereignty is that He's near and working, and that He's around and in and through that He is so involved in our lives that we actually can't look at anything in life and say that that fell outside of God's sovereignty? You can't do that. He fills heaven and earth. You can't escape God's presence, can you? He is actively involved in everything that happens in our lives. I, I like to jostle people's minds a little bit on this issue. When I, when I ask him about, uh, you know, has there ever been a time in your life when you just barely missed a, a, a tragic accident, maybe a, a near-miss car accident? Someone ran a red light and just barely missed. Did you thank God after that? You should have. I mean, none of us is going to sit here and say, oh, no, God wasn't involved. You should have thanked God. But if you're thanking God and you're claiming that He was involved, think about what you're, what you're saying. He was involved so much that we're talking about how hard people's feet are touching gas pedals. We're talking about the way the steering wheel moves. Now, this isn't saying that people are robots, but if we're thanking God for this, we're saying it some, in some way, at some level, God's involved here, isn't He? And nothing falls outside of His purview. And so God's sovereignty is rather invasive. 
which is frightening unless you've come to know Him by grace, then there is no greater comfort in life, Christian, than that doctrine that God is sovereign. That is a doctrine of comfort for the believer. For the unbeliever, that is a doctrine of great terror. He is everywhere. He sees all things, and He will hand people over to their sin and harden their hearts. I love this quote from Dale Ralph Davis. He just has a way of writing that I really appreciate. (laughs) He says, Let us react to the sheer audacity of this text. For it was Yahweh's doing to harden their hearts in order to utterly destroy them. Do we not find that disturbing, offensive, outrageous? Who gave God the right to be that sovereign? But our verdict had better remain stuck in our throat. Don't try to evade the clarity of this text. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Don't think you can escape this God by running to the New Testament. You will meet the same God there, as he references Hebrews 3. You will do better to tremble and worship. Very, very good commentary on the sovereignty of God here in Joshua 11. Like I said, this doesn't mean the people were robots. Joshua was still responsible to lead the people. He was still responsible to craft a plan. He was still responsible to go, to be strong, to be courageous. These were his responsibilities, to obey the Lord's command. Yet, the victory was totally, utterly from the Lord. Joshua employed a great strategy as he went north. You may have noticed that it said in our passage that we've read so far that these kings were meeting at the waters of Merom, is what it says. That's actually north of the Sea of Galilee on that that map that we were looking at before. It's actually above the screen. It's a little lake. These waters up there is where they were meeting. And they were, of course, planning to come down to where Israel was. They were planning to come down through that land and attack Israel. But Joshua was already moving. Joshua was already on the move. He was taking his men of war up to that place, and they surprised, attacked this group. Joshua followed his commander, the commander of the Lord's army, Yahweh himself, Jesus Christ, and he followed him in obedience, and he led others in that obedience. I want to pull up a second map. Again, this is, it's like a cell phone picture or something. It's so skinny. I'm so sorry, but there's no other way really to do it. Um, This is Again, the Dead Sea at the bottom, you can see that circle, and then you've got all the way at the top, Lake Merom, the waters of Merom, and that arrow that just kind of runs up through the middle, number eight is beside it, and the towns of Megiddo and Shimron are there. That's where Joshua and his leaders in war went up to, and they disrupted this kingly collusion. And if you notice in our text, it says that they spread them out. So you have three arrows coming out from the top there, one to the west, one to the north, one to the east, because that's where these kings and their people were driven. They were driven away from where they were, and Joshua and the Israelite army were successful as God was granting them success, as God hardened the heart of the enemy and brought them to destruction. So let's remember the book summary I've given to you as now they've reached what is the last battle? Yahweh keeps His promises by powerfully saving His people through faith and purging the evil among them. Therefore, we shall courageously follow Him into blessing. Well, Joshua courageously led, and the people courageously followed, and the result of that is blessing. Now that the enemies are finally being scattered out of the land and being destroyed, there is blessing, the blessing of rest in the land. And as we enter this Uh, second part of the sermon. There are several interesting things to see here along the way, and I feel a little bit scattered in my thoughts because there's just a lot of stuff going on that you typically wouldn't put together in one passage. So I hope you can hang in there with me. I hope we can see these things together and make application. Um, But it's just, it's what the text says, okay? And so let's, let's see how they started to experience the blessing of rest. And let's look at verses 10 to 15 as Joshua cleared out the rest of the land. It says in Joshua 11, 10, Then Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor formerly was the head of all these kingdoms. They struck every person who was in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was no one left who breathed, and he burned Hazor with fire. 
Joshua captured all the cities of these kings and all their kings, and he struck them with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed them, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. However, Israel did not burn any cities that stood on their mounds, except Hazor alone, which Joshua burned. All the spoil of these cities and the cattle the sons of Israel took as their plunder, but they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. They left no one who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Well, Joshua here is finishing, preparing the land for Israel's dwelling in their rest. And I think one of the first principles, one of the first applications that's just sitting right on top of the task, or right on top of the text, rather, is a a principle about leadership. Joshua was finishing the job. And did you know, it's a simple thing, and I'm definitely not going to dwell here, it's just a little thing, but it's a principle of leadership to finish what God gives you to start. Um, Some of us maybe struggle with that a little bit, and we've got (laughs) half-done projects here and there, and it's a good thing to finish. And as, uh, you know, someone who functions as a leader, you kind of feel the weight of that often in your leadership, that what God gives you, you need to see through to the end as a task for you to complete. Leadership isn't just starting tasks, it's finishing tasks, and that's different for everybody, isn't it? It's critically important in life to remember not just to start, but to finish. Donald Campbell, in his commentary on Joshua, said this, "'The period of the conquest lasted a long time. Victory did not come easily or quickly. It rarely does.'" That is so true. You know, this is just a few chapters in our Bible, but this took a long time, and Joshua was seeking to finish the fulfillment of the commandment that he was given. You see that language over and over again in our text today. Fulfillment language, obeying the command, and that meant leaving no one who breathed, destroying all who were there. That's what he was to do. As far as it depended on him, he was to do it as Israel's leader. We notice too in that section I just read that they didn't destroy every building. They were to destroy every living person, but they were not to destroy every building. They, in fact, redeemed some of the structures. We see that in uh, verse 13, Israel did not burn any cities that stood on their mounds. They kept some of those cities for their own. Yet they burned down Hazor. Joshua himself burned down that city. And this is a constant difficulty for God's people. Again, we're in a very different context, aren't we? But it's, it's a challenge for us to know what to keep or what to throw away. <laughs> and I'm not talking about just things around your house. Uh, there was a, a preacher that I first listened to when I was a new Christian who would talk about the principle of receiving things as they are, rejecting them, or redeeming them. And for Israel, they had to face this task as they were entering the land. Did they, were they to burn down, destroy every building, or could someone else's house become theirs? How strange that would be, entering into this land. You've killed the people who live there, and their house is now your house. That sounds kind of strange, but God Himself told them that this would happen. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is a, a key section of Scripture where God gave them the great Shema passage, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You should write this on your fence posts. You should put this over your doorway. It's very important. But he also says that you're going to inherit some of those fence posts, and you're going to inherit some of those doorways from other people. Deuteronomy 6.10, It shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which He swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied, then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? They were to receive those things just as they were. That house is now your house. That vineyard's your vineyard. That's pretty amazing. And we see in our text where they took the spoil, they took the plunder, they took it for themselves. You can imagine all kinds of animals too. But they also crushed the idols. They were not to receive pagan gods. They were not to receive certain elements 
but they needed to be crushed and destroyed along with the people. Even the horses, remember God told him, hamstring the, the horses. That means to cut them on their tendons, on their back leg, disable them permanently and burn the chariots. Because some people trust in chariots and horses, but God's people trust in Yahweh. They trust in the name of God. And so that's always a delicate balance in life, particularly when you're not given this type of revelation about what to receive, what to reject, or what to redeem. But we see that in the lives of the Israelites at this time. And it goes on in the next section, verses 16 to 20, talking about the lands that they took. There's some interesting names in there that you can look at your Bible map and see what lands they were taking at that time. But come down with me to verse 21, and let's read 21 to 23, where it sums up this whole event. It says, Then Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. There were no Anakim left in the land of the sons of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod some remained. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Thus the land had rest from war. Well, as we um, finish by considering a few things from this last passage, there's a key here that I want you to get as you look at what's being said. And that is in Hebrew literature, particularly Hebrew narrative, Key parts that are described sometimes are representative of a whole. And sometimes when it says that all of something happened, it doesn't mean literally all of something happened. And you have that quite clearly in verse 22 in this passage. You see where it's talking about the Anakim here? Look at, look at how interesting verse 22 is. There were no Anakim left in the land of the sons of Israel. Only in Gaza and in Gath and in Ashdod, some remained. How strange is that? And these aren't far-off cities. Gath is only about 30 miles from Jerusalem. I mean, this is right in the land. There were none left. Well, but uh, except for these. <laughs> Sometimes in Hebrew literature, a description of key parts constitutes a representation of the whole. That's what's going on here, and that's important to recognize. But I want to say a little bit more about these Anakim. Perhaps you remember them. They were around earlier in the Bible. They're very large people. So this isn't the Nephilim, but it's the Anakim, and they're very, very big. When the 12 spies were sent out from Israel to spy out the land at Kadesh Barnea, those 10 spies came back and said, we saw the Anakim, and they make us look like grasshoppers. These are big old tall drinks of water. That's what they say in the South. He's a tall drink of water. And they were all big people. And of course, in the flesh, it's very intimidating. Well, Joshua led a pretty strong campaign, it appears, against the Anakim, and all of them were destroyed, save just a few. And notice the cities where they went to, Gaza, Ashdod, and then this city of Gath. Do you know where Goliath was from? Gath. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? That later on, they, Israel would have to face the fact that not all of the Anakim were utterly destroyed it appears as though Goliath was a descendant of them. Well, this is a rare bright spot in Israel's history, wherein they're enjoying victory, but it wasn't perfect. Not just with the Anakim, but also with the land. You see in verse 23, it says that Joshua took the whole land. But this is another case where key parts represented the whole. If you look just over a page or two at chapter 13, verse 1, Joshua 13, verse 1, contrast this with the statement that Joshua took the whole land. It says in Joshua 13, 1, the Lord spoke to Joshua, you are old and advanced in years, and very much of the land remains to be possessed. Isn't that fascinating? Just a chapter later, we're told very much of the land remains to be possessed. You can turn over to chapter 15, verse 63, that's a big chapter. Chapter 15, verse 63, the last verse of chapter 15, it says, Now as for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the sons of Judah could not drive them out. So the Jebusites live with the sons of Judah at Jerusalem until this day. So not all the people were slain. There were some that they could not drive out, it says. 
Next chapter, Joshua 16, Joshua 16, 10, the last verse of that chapter, a very long chapter followed by a very short chapter. It says, but they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites live in the midst of Ephraim to this day, and they became forced laborers. So as they talk about the land and possessing the land and driving out the people from the land and killing the people in the land, we have to know, just like with the Anakim, a few parts, or a lot of parts in this case, are representative of the whole. That's what's going on. In fact, if you turn to the next book of your Bible, which is the book of Judges, just go to Judges chapter 1. It's the next book after Joshua. In Judges chapter 1, it starts off with just bad news because it lists some cities that were captured, but starting at verse 27, there's quite a list here of places that were not conquered by Israel, cities that were not conquered, that they weren't able to take these places, and they weren't able to destroy all the people. And then you get into chapter 2 of Judges, and Israel is rebuked for this. They're rebuked for not going all the way. Start with me in verse 1. It says, Now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. What a sad, sad scene. And then we get into the next section of Judges 2, and Joshua dies. And if you have a Bible with headings, my heading says, right after Joshua dies, Israel serves Baals. They go right into pagan worship. Not every altar was destroyed. Not every people was driven out. Not every part of the land was conquered. At this time, though, in Joshua's day, back where we are in Joshua 11, it was a bright spot, and key cities were taken. Key peoples were destroyed. Uh, Very vital areas were, were possessed by Israel so that the author here could say that they took the whole land. It was representative of the whole. It was a bright spot in their time. But of course, they were looking for a day when the entire land would truly be the Lord's. Though this was a bright spot, Israel had hardly arrived. And that's kind of the nature of living for God, isn't it? You never really arrive. If you ever get to the point where you say you've arrived spiritually, uh, come see me and you can take my job, all right? Uh, you, should be, you should be leading, you should be guiding, you should be teaching. We never truly arrive in life. As Christians, we deal with the already, not yet. You know that Scripture says that you've been saved? And Scripture says you're being saved? And Scripture says you will be saved? It's already, but it's not yet. And that's the nature of living for God. We have these tasks before us that God has led us to this place in life, and we're never completely done, are we? Until we die and we're with Him in glory, and He wipes away every tear from our eyes. But make no mistake, this time in Israel's history, as they cleared the land to the north, it was a major achievement. They finally got some rest. If you've read through your Bible from the beginning to now, it's been a long time since you've gotten to the place where it says Israel was able to chill out. Constantly being persecuted, and on the run, on the move. They were in Egypt. They were in the wilderness for four decades. They come to this land, and it's just constant battle after battle after battle. But now there's rest, an amazing victory from God. And this rest in the land was a real rest. I want to read to you from closer to the end of Joshua 21, verses 43 and 40 through 45. After they divided up the land, it's summed up this way. The Lord gave Israel all the land which He had sworn to give their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, according to all that He had sworn to their fathers. And no one of all their enemies stood before them. 
The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. What a beautiful passage. God is faithful, isn't He? He brought about true rest from their enemies on every side. His promises fail not. But we also recognize, as we consider the whole testimony of Scripture, that this rest, of course, was not a final rest for the people of God. This was not a total rest for the people of God. I want to look at one last passage. I know I've been bouncing around a lot today, and you don't have to turn there with me. It'll be on the screen. It's Psalm 95. And in Psalm 95, it speaks of a continuing opportunity for rest because Israel didn't get that final rest in the land. It says in Psalm 95, 6, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, okay, let, let that sink in. The author now, this is long after Joshua. The author here is saying, today, if you would hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter my rest. Joshua's generation, only Joshua and Caleb made it out of that generation into the land of Canaan. The rest of their generation did not enter God's rest because he swore in his anger that they wouldn't do it. But he's still offering rest years and years after Joshua. There's still a rest to be offered because going to that land in Canaan was not a total satisfaction of rest. Getting into that land and, and being in the land with having rest among their enemies, that wasn't the final rest that God had prepared. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, it's, it's pretty strongly stated. If Joshua had given them actual rest, Scripture wouldn't have gone on to talk about a future rest. There's more rest to be had. Hundreds of years after Joshua, God still talks about entering rest. And there's an ultimate rest given by another Joshua. If you remember, it's been a while since we talked about it, but Jesus' name in Hebrew, it's Joshua, isn't it? It's the same name. And Jesus comes along as another Joshua, offering another type of rest that is a total and complete satisfaction. That's a, it's a total, permanent, immovable rest from God. He's the ultimate commander that offers the ultimate rest. As the Israelites followed their commander into temporary rest, we get to follow our commander into everlasting rest, don't we? Eternal life. As the church, we can follow Jesus into the ultimate promise, and we can do that securely. I just showed you this morning where at the end of Joshua, it says they had rest on every side. All you have to do is turn a couple pages. Anytime Israel has a bright spot, just turn a couple pages. Start of Judges, they were being judged by God because they didn't get the ultimate rest through their obedience. They didn't achieve the fullness of the commandment. They didn't obey all the way. But then Jesus comes along and He obeys on our behalf, doesn't He? And He is righteous on our behalf. And because He is ultimately righteous, because He is God Himself, He can offer us a better rest. He can offer us an ultimate rest that is not conditional, not subject to loss, you know those Israelites in the land? It was subject to loss. To stay in that land, they had to obey. Deuteronomy 28, 29 spells it out clearly. You want to have peace and rest in this land? Obey the commandments. Well, let me tell you today. You want to have peace and rest in life, eternal peace and eternal rest that surpasses all understanding? My prescription to you isn't obey the commandments. You could never. Israel proves it. My charge to you 
is look to the one who never disobeyed one commandment. Look to the one who obeyed in every way the will of his Father, Jesus Christ. Look to the one who did what you could never do. He lived the life that you couldn't live, and he died the death that you deserve. And he purchased for you eternal rest. He achieved in your stead everlasting life that you could never conjure for yourself. And you can only have by throwing yourself in the full weight of your trust onto the Lord Jesus, who died and rose again, that we can have peace with God forevermore. That no enemy who comes against us would ever conquer us, but we're totally complete and secure in Jesus Christ. All of our enemies are defeated in Him, and we have ultimate victory in Him, eternal victory. We are co-heirs with Christ if we believe in Him. We are members of His kingdom. We are priests to God with Jesus, and we will reign with Him in glory. What an amazing story God's putting together, wouldn't you say? This is God's business, and He's the most beautiful author. He does a great job, and you get to be a part of it. It's wonderful. Let's pray. God, we thank You again so much for the gift of this day and the gift of Your Word. We thank You for the gift of one another. Help us to live for you by faith, recognizing that you keep your promises through faith and by purging evil, causing us to be more and more like you. As we look to that coming day, have our eyes to be fixed on the holiness that is set before us, that we would live set apart lives for your sake, that you would have the honor and glory through our lives. And help us to be full of faith and hope, knowing that the ultimate victory is ours in Christ and there is nothing to fear. We need not tremble except in worship because of what you already have done on our behalf. Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.